Chapter 8 of Practical Mysticism by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carla Arnell, Lake Forest, Illinois. Chapter 8 The Second Form of Contemplation. And here, says Ricebrook of the Self, which has reached this point, there begins a hunger and a thirst which shall never more be stilled. In the first form of contemplation, that self has been striving to know better its own natural plane of existence. It has stretched out the feelers of its intuitive love into the general stream of duration of which it is a part. Breaking down the fences of personality, merging itself in a larger consciousness, it has learned to know the world of becoming from within, as a citizen a member of the great society of life, not merely as a spectator. But the more deeply and completely you become immersed in and aware of this life, the greater the extension of your consciousness, the more insistently will rumors and intimations of a higher plane of experience, a closer unity and more complete synthesis begin to besiege you. You feel that hitherto, you have received the messages of life in a series of disconnected words and notes from which your mind constructed as best it could certain coherent sentences and tunes, laws, classifications, relations, and the rest. But now you reach out towards the ultimate sentence and melody which exist independently of your own constructive efforts and realize that the words and notes which so often puzzled you by displaying an intensity that exceeded the demands of your little world, only have beauty and meaning just because and insofar as you discern them to be the partial expressions of a greater whole which is still beyond your reach. You have long been like a child tearing up the petals of flowers in order to make a mosaic on the garden path and the results of this murderous diligence you mistook for a knowledge of the world. When the bits fitted with unusual exactitude, you called it science. Now, at last, you have perceived the greater truth and loveliness of the living plant from which you broke them, have, in fact, entered into direct communion with it, united with its reality. But this very recognition of the living, growing plant does and must entail for you a consciousness of deeper realities, which, as yet, you have not touched, of the intangible things and forces which feed and support it, of the whole universe that touches you through its life. A mere cataloging of all the plants though this were far better than your old game of indexing your own poor photographs of them, will never give you access to the unity, the fact, whatever it may be, which manifests itself through them. To suppose that it can do so is the cardinal error of the nature mystic, an error parallel with that of the psychologist who looks for the soul in psychic states. The deeper your realization of the plant in its wonder, the more perfect your union with the world of growth and change, the quicker, 
the more subtle your response to its countless suggestions. So much the more acute will become your craving for something more. You will now find and feel the infinite and eternal, making, as it were, veiled and sacramental contacts with you under these accidents. Through these, its ceaseless creative activities, and you will want to press through and beyond them to a fuller realization of, a more perfect and unmediated union with, the substance of all that is. With the great widening and deepening of your life that has ensued from the abolition of a narrow selfhood, your entrance into the larger consciousness of living things, there has necessarily come to you an instinctive knowledge of a final and absolute group relation, transcending and including all lesser unions in its sweep. To this, the second stage of contemplation, in which human consciousness enters into its peculiar heritage, something within you now seems to urge you on. If you obey this inward push, pressing forward with the sharp dart of your longing love, forcing the point of your willful attention further and further into the web of things, such an ever-deepening realization, such an extension of your conscious life, will indeed become possible to you. Nothing but your own apathy, your feeble and limited desire, limits this realization. Here, there is a strict relation between demand and supply. Your achievement shall be in proportion to the greatness of your desire. The fact and the impressing energy of the reality without does not vary. Only the extent to which you are able to receive it depends upon your courage and generosity, the measure in which you give yourself to its embrace. Those minds which set a limit to their self-donation must feel as they attain it not a sense of satisfaction, but a sense of constriction. It is useless to offer your spirit a garden, even a garden inhabited by saints and angels, and pretend that it has been made free of the universe. You will not have peace until you do away with all banks and hedges and exchange the garden for the wilderness that is unwalled, that wild, strange place of silence where lovers lose themselves. Yet you must begin this great adventure humbly and take, as Julian of Norwich did, the first stage of your new outward-going journey along the road that lies nearest at hand. When Julian looked with the eye of contemplation upon that little thing which revealed to her the oneness of the created universe, her deep and loving sight perceived in it successively three properties, which she expressed as well she might under the symbols of her own theology. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loveth it. The third is that God keepeth it. Here are three phases in the ever-widening contemplative apprehension of reality. Not three opinions, but three facts, for which she struggles to find words. The first is that each separate living thing, budding like an hazelnut upon the tree of life, and there destined to mature, age, and die, is the outbirth of another power, of a creative push, 
that the world of becoming in all its richness and variety is not ultimate but formed by something other than and utterly transcendent to itself this of course the religious mind invariably takes for granted but we are concerned with immediate experience rather than faith to feel and know those two aspects of reality which we call created and uncreated nature and spirit to be as sharply aware of them as sure of them as we are of land and sea is to be made free of the supersensual world it is to stand for an instant at the poet's side and see that poem of which you have deciphered separate phrases in the earlier form of contemplation then you were learning to read and found in the words the lines the stanzas an astonishing meaning and loveliness but how much greater the significance of every detail would appear to you how much more truly you would possess its life were you acquainted with the poem not as a mere succession of such lines and stanzas but as a non-successional whole from this julian passes to that deeper knowledge of the heart which comes from a humble and disinterested acceptance of life that this creation this whole changeful natural order with all its apparent collisions cruelties and waste yet springs from an ardor an immeasurable love a perpetual donation which generates it upholds it drives it for all thing hath the being by the love of god blake's anguished question here receives its answer the mind that conceived the lamb conceived the tiger too everything says julian in effect whether gracious terrible or malignant is enwrapped in love and is part of a world produced not by mechanical necessity but by passionate desire therefore nothing can really be mean nothing despicable nothing however perverted irredeemable the blasphemous otherworldliness of the false mystic who conceives of matter as an evil thing and flies from its deceits is corrected by this loving sight hence the more beautiful and noble a thing appears to us the more we love it so much the more truly do we see it for then we perceive within it the divine ardor surging up towards expression and share that simplicity and purity of vision in which most saints and some poets see all things as they are in god lastly this love-driven world of duration this work within which the divine artist passionately and patiently expresses his infinite dream under finite forms is held in another mightier embrace it is kept says julian paradoxically the perpetual changeful energies of love and creation which inspire it are gathered up and made complete within the unchanging fact of being the eternal and absolute within which the world of things is set as the tree is set in the supporting earth the enfolding air there finally is the rock and refuge of the seeking consciousness wearied 
by the ceaseless process of the flux. There, that flux exists in its wholeness, all at once, in a manner which we can never comprehend, but which in hours of withdrawal we may sometimes taste and feel. It is in man's moments of contact with this when he penetrates beyond all images, however lovely, however significant, to that ineffable awareness which the mystics call naked contemplation, since it is stripped of all the clothing with which reason and imagination drape and disguise both our devils and our gods, that the hunger and thirst of the heart is satisfied, and we receive indeed an assurance of ultimate reality. This assurance is not the cool conclusion of a successful argument. It is rather the seizing at last of something which we have ever felt near us and enticing us, the unspeakably simple because completely inclusive solution of all the puzzles of life. As then you gave yourself to the broken up yet actual reality of the natural world in order that it might give itself to you, and your possession of its secret was achieved, first by surrender of selfhood, next by a diligent thrusting out of your attention, last by a union of love. So now, by a repetition upon fresh levels of that same process, you are to mount up to higher unions still. Held tight, as it seems to you in the finite, committed to the perpetual rhythmic changes, the unceasing flux of natural life, compelled to pass on from state to state, to grow, to age, to die, there is yet, as you discovered in the first exercise of recollection, something in you which endures through and therefore transcends this world of change. This inhabitant, this mobile spirit, can spread and merge in the general consciousness and gather itself again to one intense point of personality. It has, too, an innate knowledge of, an instinct for, another greater rhythm, another order of reality, as yet outside its conscious field, or, as we say, a capacity for the infinite. This capacity, this unfulfilled craving, which the cunning mind of the practical man suppresses and disguises as best it can, is the source of all your unrest. More, it is the true origin of all your best loves and enthusiasms, the inspiring cause of your heroisms and achievements, which are but oblique and tentative efforts to still that strange hunger for some final object of devotion, some completing and elucidating vision, some total self-donation, some great and perfect act within which your little activity can be merged. St. Thomas Aquinas says that a man is only withheld from this desired vision of the divine essence, this discovery of the pure act, which indeed is everywhere pressing in on him and supporting him, by the apparent necessity which he is under of turning to bodily images, of breaking up his continuous and living intuition into conceptual scraps, 
in other words, because he cannot live the life of sensation without thought. But it is not the man, it is merely his mental machinery which is under this necessity. This it is which translates, analyzes, incorporates in finite images the boundless perceptions of the spirit, passing through its prism the white light of reality and shattering it to a succession of colored rays. Therefore, the man who would know the divine secret must unshackle himself more thoroughly than ever before from the tyranny of the image-making power. As it is not by the methods of the laboratory that we learn to know life, so it is not by the methods of the intellect that we learn to know God. For of all other creatures and their works, says the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, yea, and of the works of God's self, may a man through grace have full head of knowing, and well he can think of them, but of God himself can no man think. And therefore I would leave all that thing that I can think, and choose to my love that thing that I cannot think. For why? He may well be loved, but not thought. By love may he be gotten and holden, but by thought never. Gotten and holden, homely words, that suggest rather the outstretching of the hand to take something lying at your very gates than the long outward journey of terrific ascent of the contemplative soul. Reality indeed, the mystics say, is near and far, far from our thoughts, but saturating and supporting our lives. Nothing would be nearer, nothing dearer, nothing sweeter, were the doors of our perception truly cleansed. You have then but to focus attention upon your own deep reality. Realize your own soul in order to find it. We dwell in him and he in us. You participate in the eternal order now. The vision of the divine essence, the participation of its own small activity in the supernal act, is for the spark of your soul a perpetual process. On the apex of your personality, spirit ever gazes upon spirit, melts and merges in it. From and by this encounter, its life arises and is sustained. But you have been busy from your childhood with other matters. All the urgent affairs of life, as you absurdly called it, have monopolized your field of consciousness. Thus, all the important events of your real life, physical and spiritual, the mysterious perpetual growth of you, the knitting up of fresh bits of the universe into the unstable body which you confuse with yourself, the hum and whir of the machine which preserves your contacts with the material world, the more delicate movements which condition your correspondences with and growth within the spiritual order. All these have gone on unperceived by you. All the time you have been kept and nourished, like the little thing, by an enfolding and creative love. Yet of this you are less conscious than you are of the air that you breathe. Now, as in the first stage of contemplation you learned and established, 
as a patent and experienced fact, your fraternal relation with all the other children of God, entering into the rhythm of their existence, participating in their stress and their joy. Will you not at least try to make patent this your filial relation too? This actualization of your true status, your place in the eternal world, is waiting for you. It represents the next phase in your gradual achievement of reality. The method by which you will attain to it is strictly analogous to that by which you obtained a more vivid awareness of the natural world in which you grow and move. Here, too, it shall be direct, intuitive contact, sensation, rather than thought, which shall bring you certitude, tasting food, not talking about it, as St. Bonaventura says. Yet there is a marked difference between these two stages. In the first, the deliberate inward retreat and gathering together of your faculties, which was effected by recollection, was the prelude to a new coming forth and outflow from the narrow limits of a merely personal life to the better and truer apprehension of the created world. Now, in the second stage, the disciplined and recollected attention seems to take an opposite course. It is directed towards a plane of existence with which your bodily senses have no attachments, which is not merely misrepresented by your ordinary concepts, but cannot be represented by them at all. It must therefore sink inwards towards its own center, away from all that can be thought or felt, as the mystics say, away from every image, every notion, every thing, towards that strange condition of obscurity which St. John of the Cross calls the night of sense. Do this steadily, checking each vagrant instinct, each insistent thought, however spiritual it may seem, pressing ever more deeply inwards towards that ground, that simple and undifferentiated being from which your diverse faculties emerge. Presently, you will find yourself emptied and freed in a place stripped bare of all the machinery of thought and achieve the condition of simplicity which those same specialists call nakedness of spirit or wayless love and which they declare to be above all human images and ideas, a state of consciousness in which all the workings of the reason fail. Then you will observe that you have entered into an intense and vivid silence, a silence which exists in itself, through and in spite of the ceaseless noises of your normal world. Within this world of silence, you seem as it were to lose yourself, to ebb and to flow, to wander and be lost in the imageless ground, says Ricebrook, struggling to describe the sensations of the self in this, its first initiation into the wayless world beyond image, where all is, yet in no wise. Yet in spite of the darkness that enfolds you, the cloud of an unknowing into which you have plunged, you are sure that it is well to be here. A peculiar certitude which you cannot analyze, a strange satisfaction and peace is distilled into you. You begin to understand what the psalmist meant when he said, Be still and know. 
You are lost in a wilderness, a solitude, a dim, strange state of which you can say nothing, since it offers no material to your image-making mind. But this wilderness, from one point of view so bare and desolate, from another is yet strangely homely. In it, all your sorrowful questionings are answered without utterance. It is the all, and you are within it, and part of it, and know that it is good. It calls forth the utmost adoration of which you are capable, and mysteriously gives love for love. You have ascended now, say the mystics, into the freedom of the will of God, are become part of a higher, slower duration, which carries you, as it were, upon its bosom, and, though never perhaps before has your soul been so truly active, seems to you a stillness, a rest. The doctrine of Plotinus concerning a higher life of unity, a lower life of multiplicity, possible to every human spirit, will now appear to you not a fantastic theory, but a plain statement of fact, which you have verified in your own experience. You perceive that these are the two complementary ways of apprehending and uniting with reality, the one as a dynamic process, the other as an eternal whole. Thus understood, they do not conflict. You know that the flow, the broken-up world of change and multiplicity, is still going on, and that you, as a creature of the time world, are moving and growing with it. But, thanks to the development of the higher side of your consciousness, you are now lifted to a new poise, a direct participation in that simple transcendent life, broken yet not divided, which gives to this time world all its meaning and validity. And you know, without derogation from the realness of that life of flux within which you first made good your attachments to the universe, that you are also a true constituent of the greater whole, that since you are man, you are also spirit, and are living eternal life now in the midst of time. The effect of this form of contemplation, in the degree in which the ordinary man may learn to practice it, is like the sudden change of atmosphere, the shifting of values which we experience when we pass from the busy streets into a quiet church, where a lamp burns and a silence reigns, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thence is poured forth a stillness which strikes through the tumult without, eluding the flicker of the arc lamps, thence through an upper window we may glimpse a perpetual star. The walls of the church, limiting the range of our attention, shutting out the torrent of life with its insistent demands and appeals, make possible our apprehension of this deep, eternal peace. The character of our consciousness intermediate between eternity and time, and ever ready to swing between them, makes such a device, such a concrete aid to concentration, essential to us. But the peace, the presence, is everywhere. For us, not for it, 
is the altar and the sanctuary required and your deliberate humble practice of contemplation will teach you at last to find it outside the sheltering walls of recollection as well as within you will realize then what julian meant when she declared the ultimate property of all that was made to be that god keepeth it will feel the violent consciousness of an unfolding presence utterly transcending the fluid changeful nature life and incomprehensible to the intelligence which that nature life has developed and trained and as you knew the secret of that nature life best by surrendering yourself to it by entering its currents and refusing to analyze or arrange so here by a deliberate giving of yourself to the silence the rich nothingness the cloud you will draw nearest to the reality it conceals from the eye of sense lovers put out the candle and draw the curtains says patmore when they wish to see the god and the goddess and in the higher communion the night of thought is the light of perception such an experience of eternity the attainment of that intuitive awareness that meek and simple self-mergence which the mystics call sometimes according to its degree and special circumstances the quiet the desert of god the divine dark represents the utmost that human consciousness can do of itself towards the achievement of union with reality to some it brings joy and peace to others fear to all a paradoxical sense of the lowliness and greatness of the soul which now at last can measure itself by the august standards of the infinite though the trained and diligent will of the contemplative can if control of the attention be really established recapture this state of awareness retreat into the quiet again and again yet it is of necessity a fleeting experience for man is immersed in duration subject to it its demands upon his attention can only cease with the cessation of physical life perhaps not then perpetual absorption in the transcendent is a human impossibility and the effort to achieve it is both unsocial and silly but this experience this ascent to the knot changes forever the proportions of the life that once has known it gives to it depth and height and prepares the way for those further experiences that great transfiguration of existence which comes when the personal activity of the finite will gives place to the great and compelling action of another power end of chapter 8 recorded by carla arnell lake forest illinois